Well, good morning. Look at you all. You're outstanding. I don't know if you could tell from where you were sitting, but from where I was sitting, you all sounded great this morning. And I couldn't hear you online, but I'm sure you sounded great as well. And really, who cares what I think or who cares what we think? But we just, whether it's in our worship or our singing or our prayer or our study, we give our best to God so that he would be pleased. And we live a life that seeks to please him with everything that we have. Is that right? That's why we're here. Um, I just want to take a quick moment right here at the outset before we get diving into the word, just to say a special thank you to so many of you who served and volunteered, many over multiple services last week at Christmas, to make those services spectacular and wonderful and powerful for everyone who took part. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It was really, it was a great great weekend. We had, I don't know, I think the numbers are in and there were roughly a jillion people who joined with us and visited with us. Maybe you did, maybe you joined in, maybe you're coming back for a first time. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Or maybe this is just your first time here with us and I got to meet some of you for whom that's true. Welcome. Glad you're here. If I didn't get to meet you uh, on the way in, hopefully you'll stop by and say hi and I can greet you on the way out. That would be great. But here we are, not just on the final Sunday of the year, but on the final day of the year. In the final hours of this year. And we're at this kind of weird spot, right? Where um, it's like one part of us is looking back. And we can look back across a year that has been. And we can kind of, in some cases, kind of grieve the things that went wrong. But mostly celebrate God's presence, even in the middle of that. And and celebrate all the ways that we met God and he met us in the course of a year. So there's one part looking back and celebrating God there. There's another part, I always think of it as the better part, that's looking forward saying, God, what are you going to do next? Where are you taking us next? What's the next thing you have in store for us as we grow and as we walk in him that way? And, uh, And that's kind of... It's actually, it's a very appropriate kind of place to be as we talk about this particular passage of scripture. Because we're talking about something that happened um, after the events of the Christmas narrative and just on the way forward on into everyday life. Christmas is kind of a weird celebration anyway, right? Because on the one hand, it's the celebration of God's, the fulfillment of God's promise, right? God promised a Messiah would come, and the Messiah came, and, and he arrived. And so there's the fulfillment of that, process, of that promise. But hear me when I say, but it's kind of incomplete, because that Messiah hasn't done anything yet. He's just been born, laid in a manger, and he's arrived, and he's been appropriately worshipped. And that's great. That in itself is worthy of the celebration we brought But that is not the finish of God's promises with that Messiah. There were things he was doing and that young young infant would grow up to be a young man who would go on to transform the world and die on the cross to save us from our sins. All of that's ahead. So there's a partly fulfilled promise and a more promise yet to come. And isn't that where we live? Don't we live in that place where God, you've, you've saved me. You've promised me things and I've received the gift. I've received so much of what you've promised. And at the same time that that's true, there are these other things you've promised ahead of me that are not here yet, but which are coming. And we stand in this tension between celebrating the promises that have been fulfilled, but recognizing there's more work to be done and more ground to be gained and more promises to be filled, uh, fulfilled in the future, right? That's where we are. And that's in this particular passage. It's um, 
So we still got the Christmas trees up and some of the decorations around. The passage we're talking about this morning, it's part of the Christmas narrative, even though it does kind of stand apart from it a little bit. We're going to read about the visit of the Magi, the wise men who came to visit Jesus. It takes place sometime after Christ's birth. There's the whole Christmas narrative, all the the travel to Jerusalem, the no room at the inn, the delivery in the barn, the baby in the manger. And then everyone went home. You know that feeling? I'm not sure when your Christmas Christmas guests left, but there's Christmas and there's chaos and there's craziness and there's people and it's awesome and it's chaotic. And then they go home. (sighs) Now what? This passage kind of takes place in a bit of a now what moment that way. Although in the text, the visit of the Magi comes right on the heels and is part of the narrative, it actually takes place sometime later, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But um, we're going to find out that in the post-Christmas life-moving-forward world, we're going to look at how people are finding Christ in the everyday. And we're going to see a real contrast. We're going to do a compare and contrast because they're, they're the wise men who come seeking. And then there's King Herod on the other side. And both are interacting with the reality that Christ is here, but they react to that in very different ways. And so we're going to explain that. And then we're going to maybe, hopefully, make it really personal and go, where do I identify? It, Do I find myself experiencing the kinds of things that were going on with the Magi as they arrived? Or as potentially a warning, maybe do I see some things in my life that are a little more connected with what was going on with Herod on his side of the ledger? So let's start in Matthew chapter 2 at the beginning of that chapter. This is what Matthew writes and this is what Matthew records. He says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose, and we have come to worship him. Very common. We're used to the story. We love that. This passage raises some questions for us. It says after Jesus was born. How long after? We're going to get to that down the road here in just a little bit, but it's up, to, it's up to two years later. I know our nativity sets have the wise men there with the angels and the shepherds, and they're all part of that. That's because they're so close in the narrative of the text. But as we're going to see, this actually took, took place sometime later. Who, here's another question. Who are these people? These, these magi, these wise men. We don't know a lot about them, And that's an important thing as we read through the scripture, just as a point of instruction. When scripture says very little about something, we're sometimes tempted to fill in the details. Wouldn't it be cool if, or I can just imagine if, or maybe there's some secret detail that really smart scholarly people know that if I just studied for enough years and got enough degrees, I'd really understand. I find the truth of the matter to be very often that if scripture is not giving a lot of attention to it, it's quite possible that it's not that important, that it's not the point. And so scripture raises questions. Who are these people, the Magi? 
we can look and say, what does scripture inform us about that? And maybe what does history teach us about what might have been? But we don't have to go too deep uh, and dig down too far into the weeds and waste time on the really obscure when sometimes the most important things are right in front of us in scripture. These are, these are foreigners who came from the east. They traveled a long way. They came from a culture which in the day was participated in kind of an odd blend of the science of astronomy and the religion of astrology and brought them together. The science of astronomy is simply the observing of the places of the stars and the planets in the sky and their movements and and everything like that. Not a problem there, but they mixed that with a sense that the future could be told or divined by those movements. And there was kind of a a faith system belief that says that we learn everything we need to know about creation and the, and the workings of, the, of how deities want us to behave by somehow finding it scripted for us and determined in the stars. A very, uh, the astronomy part of that, not a problem. As followers of Christ, we go, ooh, on the astrology side of that, I'm not so sure. I get, I, I'm not going to resolve the tension, but let's just be clear. There is a little tension about, wait a minute, these people who believe the wrong things and are a part of the wrong belief system, we're a part of a belief system that doesn't really match with everything that God's doing. These people, using their system, figured it out and got to the manger. That's weird, isn't it? My expectations would be the people who are following Jehovah, the people who are trusting in his word and studying his word. and get it, I might expect them to find their way. But somehow along the way, these people from way far away, who probably did have access to some of the Old Testament writings and knew a bit from there, but also followed a system of belief that would have been very foreign to most believing Jews in the day, have this moment where they discern there's something happening over there And we're going to travel there and find out what it is. And we're going to act on that. I think probably more important than what they believe or what their belief system is or where does the astrology mix with authentic faith. I don't think that those things are nearly as important as that these men were seekers. And in the midst of their seeking, in the way of their own particular worldview and in the midst of their own particular culture, they were seeking for truth. And for those who seek the truth, that pathway will always guide you to the manger. It will always lead you to Christ. And that was their experience as well. How about this as a question? What about the star? How does that work? Which star? How did they know which star? How did they follow it? Did the star move? I don't know. I heard heard one minister giving a sermon. I love this. And his suggestion was, I love this, when he said... You know, on the night that Christ was born, Pastor Mike described it as, bam, that moment when the light from heaven shines down on the shepherds and the angels proclaim uh, God's message, right? Wouldn't it be great if what it was that the wise men saw from so far away was that moment of revelation of God's announcement through the angels that Christ was being born. I love, I love that thought. If it was, that means that they, in that moment, said, we're going, we're going to go see what that's about. Maybe most importantly, the thing I want us to see in the wise men is this, is their mindset. When they say, when we saw his star, uh, it rose, and when it rose, and we have come to worship him. They had a mindset to worship. Regardless of their culture, regardless of, of their system of belief, they came and found Christ with a heart 
to worship. Let's carry on. Matthew continues to record at this point. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him was disturbed. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then he quotes the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Whole another set of questions. What's going on with Herod? First of all, why is Herod so disturbed? It says he was disturbed. He's got an envoy of important people from far away who stop in and kind of do the culturally appropriate thing and say, hey, here's our business and here's why we're here. We're looking for this one who's been born king of the Jews. And this disturbed Herod because he was the king. If there was a throne to pass on as king of the Jews, that would belong to his offspring, not some pretender. This was, not, this was in an era when the peaceful transfer of power was not even a thing. When, when one king came in and took over a kingdom from another, the very first order of business was to wipe out the preceding king and all of that king's family members so that they would never rise up and revolt against you. So when they come in and say, hey, we're here to see this newborn king of the Jews who will replace you, Herod's mindset is, this is the person that's going to rise up and kill me and put my family to death. That's disturbing. Now, what we have to understand, again, Herod absolutely misunderstood the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to build, right? He, um, this Christ's kingdom was not about um, the levers of earthly power at all. It was a spiritual kingdom. And he made that clear at all stages of his ministry here and all the way through to his time on the cross. It also, interestingly, says... Herod was disturbed, but then it says, and all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Why was everybody else disturbed? Because Herod's a tyrant. And if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody going to be happy. He was a little unhinged. We see that at other, in other parts of the scripture in his dealings with John the Baptist and others. And, and a disrupted, disturbed, upset King Herod was, was likely to wreak havoc on the land. So this is not just Herod's issue, it's all of the people's issue as well. King Herod, it turns out, had to go to the religious rulers and leaders to find out where the promised Messiah was supposed to be born. He says, well, if there is this new king, where is he supposed to be? What do the prophets say? Why didn't Herod know that? It's interesting, he calls them in, he says, essentially, he says, I know that there are some prophecies about the Messiah to come. I know they're in there, in the, bat, in the, in the, in the book somewhere. I know, that, I know there's a passage that says, but I can't find it. Can you help me? So on the one hand, he's familiar enough with, what's, what, with what is in the, the law and the prophets. He's familiar enough with it to know there's something there that's going to tell me the where of, Jesus, of the birth of this king. But there's not enough familiarity to know what it is. At some point along the way, Herod apparently became content with the amount of 
knowledge of God's word that he had and stopped growing in that knowledge and stopped growing in that maturity in the word and and stopped um, accumulating more knowledge. I, I think there's a warning for some of us in that reality. I think, like, I, I can think of lots of things. I know that's in the Bible. I know enough about what God says about that. In fact, I feel like I know enough about it so much that I'm going to stop looking. I'm going to stop going back and reinforcing. I'm going to stop going back and stop learning moving forward. You ever have that experience? Oh, there's a, I know there's a verse in there. I know the Bible says something about. I know, I don't know where it is. You know, Herod didn't have Google. We have Google, but we still have Herod's problem. That sometimes we become satisfied in the knowledge and the growth and whatever level of relationship with God that we have that we allow our satisfaction to keep us from digging deeper and pursuing harder and going after more. If if that's you, there's more ahead for you. Why is it that Herod is so interested in finding out where this this new king is to be born? Uh, This comes, this is answered in this next part of this passage in Matthew. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. And he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. But we all know Herod had no intention of going and bending his knee before what he considered to be the pretender to his own throne. His intention is to eliminate what he perceives as a threat to his own crown and a threat to his own power. And we know this because of what happens later on in the narrative. And so here I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, I'm gonna, in, the, in the passage, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So, spoiler alert, if you don't know this part of the story, you're going to know it in just a moment. The Magi do go and they find Jesus, Jesus and they do their thing, but they ignore Herod's request and they go back home a different way. And when that happens, Herod is in a bit of a pickle. He can't, because they didn't report back to him, he can't know which particular child in Bethlehem is the one that is a threat to his crown. He knows two things. The location of that child, it's Bethlehem, and the age of that child that he's two years old. We know this because in verse 16 of this passage, again, we've jumped ahead a little, but he says this, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he learned from the Magi. From the Magi, he knows this pretender to the throne, this one that you need to put to death so that he doesn't, Um, get in the way of your power. He's in Bethlehem, and he's two years old. And without knowing the specific child, he gives the order, kill all of them. What on 
earth possesses someone to give an order to wipe out a generation of infants. I think possesses is the right word. I think there is a demonic element that comes in and says, wipe out the kids. Make the kids expendable. Make the innocents expendable. Just wipe them out. I think there's absolutely a demonic element at play there. Especially because the enemy, we know from the other places, when when the devil comes and tempts Jesus, and at points along the way, the enemy is doing everything he can to make sure that this Messiah doesn't come and fulfill his mission. And he's trying to do this here as well through Herod. Herod was so focused on the threat from a perceived rival that he didn't even realize the demonic nature of what it was that he was ordering. And it is very easy for us to say, man, he's horrible. He's terrible. And he is. But what we must do when we read the scripture is to say, Lord, where am I in this? And what do I learn from this? And, and where are the places that I identify, not just with the right people, but God, where are those places that I identify with the wrong people? Some of us, and I say us because I'm including myself, have people in our life, they've wronged us, they've hurt us, they've cheated us, they've abandoned us, and they're clearly in the wrong. And there is a temptation to become so focused on the wrongness of our rival that we can end up like Herod stepping into some activity, stepping into some mindset stepping into some unforgiveness and some bitterness and uh, and some anger it's just part of the enemy's attempt to veer us off course I just want to ask Who is that person in your life? You just can't get them out of your mind. They're so unreasonable. They're so toxic. They've treated you so badly. They're getting in the way of everything. And and if there's a name and a face that goes with that description for you, I want to offer you from this passage, check yourself. Is it possible that we have so focused on that one who would rise up as a rival to our power or our comfort or whatever that without realizing we might entertain notions of doing the unthinkable in order to get them what they deserve? Under most circumstances, I would not say, I will never forgive anybody. Under most circumstances, I would not say, well, let them just get what they deserve. Under most circumstances, I would not, in very hyper-spiritual language, say, Lord, I call down judgment from heaven upon that person. Under most circumstances, I wouldn't do that because that would be wrong. But man, when I get hyper-focused on that rival, the enemy can get in there and I can find myself doing those things. Finding myself aligning with Herod, not the Magi. Finding myself 
allowing myself to step into terrible decisions because I've become so focused over here. This may be the Sunday for some of us that it's time to let go of that and to acknowledge it's time to stop looking at whatever it is that they did and start asking God, what is it, that, what is it in me that can't let go of that and would step into some just horrible acts of behavior on my own because of it? You came expecting a nice, gentle, easy, happy New Year message. Sorry to disappoint. Back to the part of the narrative that we skipped over. What did the Magi do when they actually found Jesus? Matthew records this. He says, after they heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I just, I love these guys. They just kept looking for Jesus until they found him. There's like, that's a whole sermon unto itself, right? Just keep seeking Jesus until you find him. But they did that. And when they found him, they knew the appropriate response. These men who were um, leaders, who were influential, who were intellectual, who were men of resource, who had the ability to do, to traverse many, many, many miles and have treasure left over when they got there. They kneel before this infant and they worship. I had this moment when I was reading this where I thought, hmm, like were they really worshiping? Like maybe I should look, maybe I should look at the original languages because maybe like the kind of worship they're doing is different than like the worship we do because they're, you know, they're astrologers and wise men and they're whatever they are. So I looked and you know what the word for worship is? Worship, same one. <laughs> Absolutely the same word that shows up as worship everywhere else in the New Testament. They came from afar. Their understanding of what was actually happening may have been very limited, but they knew this, that in the presence of this child, there was only one appropriate response to bend the knee, to signify your inferiority, and to worship from the heart. They knelt, and they worshiped, and they brought gifts that honored him. So with the time that we have remaining, I just I want to call some attention to some of the attributes of the Magi, some of the attributes of Herod. And together, maybe we can just do an inventory and say, do I see myself here? Do I see myself there? And what do I need to do about that? I see three things that really at play in the response of the Magi here. And the first is faith. They saw this event in the sky. They saw the star rising 
We don't know how they got from I see a star rising to there's a newborn king in Jerusalem, but they did. They came to that conclusion. And at the moment they came to the conclusion, they said, you know what we're going to do about that? We're traveling as far away as we can possibly get, and we are going to go look into that. I've been around long enough to know that when their wives and their parents and their families and their kids and their people heard, hey, we're going to take a trip. Why? Well, because we saw a star. So, well, there's a new king in Jerusalem. So, we just know that we have to go see him. We just know. You don't have to. Did you, does it really mean that? Do you really think that's a sign? Do you really, is that really true? And they had the same kind of moment of uh, faith commitment that God calls us to all the time. Doesn't matter what the people around me understand. It doesn't matter how difficult the journey may be. There comes a moment when we understand that God has spoken and called us to something. We're just going to go and do it. We're going to... We're going to say, I, I believe that God is in this direction. I'm, I'm following him. It, it can be something as simple from, gosh, my neighbor across the street, they've, they've fallen ill. I wonder, if, I wonder if I should just go take them a meal. Nah, I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they have family. There's a lot of reasons not to. That might be awkward. I don't know about their food allergies. Fill in the blanks, right? There's all of that. But at some point, God speaks to our heart and says, here's a chance to love somebody. And there's a response that says, I'm not even sure I understand all the details, but God, you have put this on my heart. I'm going to go do that thing. And, and sometimes it's a little thing like walk across the street and share a meal. And sometimes it's a huge thing, like it's time to sell your house, uproot, and go serve God in a different place. And, and everything in between. The point isn't how big a step is it or how small a step is it. The point is how pure is our response that I am pre-committed in advance that when God says go do, I will go do. And it might take me across the street or it might take me across the world, but I'm going to respond in faith to what it is that God is putting in my heart. Beyond just having the faith, faith was like the first thing I noticed, but the other is, is the action, right? It's one thing to believe and to become convinced of something and say, I really do believe. But the moment they believed it, they put action to it. We don't find amongst the Magi the sense that, hey, we saw the star, we figured it out, new king in Jerusalem. We know you don't. Congratulations. They said, no, we're, we are going. We're going to do that. There's a lot of following the Lord that has to do with learning what he's saying and learning what is true in his word and, uh, and having an understanding of how he wants us to be. The, but that's all up here. And there's a lot of Christian faith that has to do with the changing of my heart so that I'm more forgiving, more loving, more humble, more Christ-like, less like who I am and more like who Jesus wants me to be. That's a changing of the heart. And then there's a, there's a part of following Jesus that is growing in the knowledge we've got and changing the way that he's changing us. Let's go do what he's saying and put action to that. We, it's not our actions that bring us into relationship with God. Jesus' actions on the cross already did that. 
So when we say go do and put some action to it, that's not the way we step into God's family and step into favor with him and step into right relationship with him. That's taken care of on the cross for those who believe. But following that, when God says, I have this in mind, it's time to put action to whatever it is that that we hear him saying to us to do. If you're like me, you get way too comfortable going, I think I know what God wants me to do, and I'm going to just put that off in the future somewhere. I'm sure God is calling me to engage in this or to learn in that or to grow in that or to serve in that, and I'm going to get to that when I can. Putting it on a to-do list is not taking action. Action is what happens when we take something off the to-do list and we actually go and do it. So let me ask you this question. For you personally, and this should be a different answer to every person in a chair. What is it that God has put on your heart to do? What's that divine thing on the inside that, and maybe you've been holding that off for years, for whatever reason, for whatever purpose, I don't know. But what is that thing that you know is on your heart to do because God is the one who has sponsored it and authored it in your heart? What are you waiting for? There's faith and then there's action. And finally, there's resource. It takes, takes a lot of resource to get those guys and their crew and their camels and their everything else all the way across the desert to wherever it is they were going, right? And then they arrived with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Really great symbolic gifts, right? Gold is a, a gift that's given for royalty. It represents wealth and power and everything else. Frankincense, it's, a, it's like an aromatic dried resin that they burned as part of, as like incense in temple worship. In fact, with, within the Old Testament instructions about the incense being burned within the temple and on the altar, frankincense was a part of that. And myrrh is very much like frank, frankincense in that it's kind of a dried resin or sap that's then burned as in, used in incense, but also it's used for the preparation of bodies and burial. There's, there's a forecasting here that something about this child who has just been given life and, uh, and is new is destined to die in the most significant way. But the wise men came and they brought their resource and offered it to him. As they followed him, they brought together faith and action and resource. And so we have this account. Now, can we contrast that with Herod? Here's what we know about Herod on the other side. It says he was disturbed. He heard about Jesus and he was disturbed. He was disturbed because the arrival of Jesus was going to upset the way things were for him. It's true for you and me too. When Jesus comes into our life, great things happen. But also, some things get upended. Our lives typically, apart from Christ, are not ordered around God first and others second and then humble me down at the bottom, right? We, we tend to invert that quite a bit. And when Jesus comes in and takes up residence in our heart, he's, in our heart he starts reorganizing things. And, and that'll disturb the status quo. Look, we don't have to change one single bit in order for Jesus to accept us and to love us and, and to forgive us our sins. He does that no matter what we do. But 
But then, so in all our sin, in all our brokenness, in all our misshapen priorities, in all of that, he says, I love you, you're mine, will you accept me? And we say, yes. He says, awesome, you're in, I love you, my son, my precious daughter. Now, because I love you, I'm unwilling to leave you as you are. Let's start changing some stuff. Herod knew that the arrival of Jesus meant things were going to change. And he was disturbed by it. So disturbed that he couldn't rejoice and he couldn't worship. Not only was he disturbed, he was defensive. Like, Jesus was going to come forward. And that meant that Herod was going to have less power, less influence, less notoriety, less anything. Compare that with John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, when, G, when his, the, you know, Jesus disciples like, um, or John's disciples like, hey, there's this Jesus guy, and he's, you know, he's getting way more likes on his social media than you are. What's, what, what are you going to do about that? And instead of being defensive, John the Baptist said, what? This is great. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. He must increase. I must decrease. Herod was the opposite of that. I don't dare let him increase. Herod was disturbed and he was defensive. He was deceitful. He said, I know how I want this story to end up. And so I'm not going to tell the wise men, the magi, the truth. I'm going to send them on a mission and try and co-opt their good intentions for my evil purposes. He was willing to bend the truth to accomplish his own purposes. None of us would ever do that, would we? Bend the truth a little bit because the purposes we need to have have happen are really not so bad. Flirt right on the edge of dishonesty or maybe even step over the line into like outright dishonesty because although that's a pretty bad thing, it kind of gets me to a better place. We would never do that. Or maybe sometimes. We might do it, but we shouldn't. And when we do it, we're aligning ourselves with the King Herod in this story, not the Magi. And ultimately, as we mentioned before, there's just the demonic component of that that says that there are children and there are innocents, and it doesn't matter how badly I damage the most vulnerable in this society, it serves my purposes, and so I will. So incumbent in this moment is to say, Lord, how do you want me to be more like the Magi? Where do you want me to respond in faith, and where do you want me to step into action, and, and where do you want me to direct resources to what you have said And also, God, would you show me those places in me that are maybe a little more Herod-like? Where where are the things that I'm just disturbed and defensive, Jesus, about what you want to change in me? Where am I willing to blur the edges of what's right or true in order to accomplish my purposes? So I guess, like, for action steps, and what does it look like to walk away? The first one would be this, would be to identify your next step of faith. The, the, The Magi... Their next step of faith got really clearly articulated. We got to go to Jerusalem and see this king. They identified it first. They knew what it was to you. What is your next step of faith? Look, New Year's resolutions are dumb. 
They don't work. Statistics say that by February 15th, by Valentine's Day, you're done with, you're already off your New Year's resolution. New Year's resolutions are dumb. Steps of faith are wise. So the question maybe isn't, what's my New Year's resolution? Maybe the question is, what's that next step God's calling you to take? Most of the time, we, like if we search our hearts, we know what it is. We've just been hesitant about diving in. Identify that next step of faith. Second is to apply action, both action and resource to that step. What's that step he's calling you to take? Take action. And what resource of yours, whether that's your time, your energy, your attention, your focus, your funds, whatever, whatever it is, you've got to apply resource to join with your action to do that thing God's calling you to do. And then finally, and I hope this doesn't hurt too bad, we've got to recognize and reject any of those Herod-like responses inside. Where are the places, as you do an honest evaluation with God, he's like, uh-oh, this, this corner of my life, this portion of my life, this area, this is aligning way more with Herod than with the Magi on the other side. And when we identify it, just to recognize it and reject it and to walk away from it. Thank you so much for joining us at Mission Vale Christian Church. Just know that we always have live services here every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. We'd love to have you here and we'll see you next time.